Welcome to The Truth in His Heart. I am your host, Rob Lee. I said that with a, with a certain amount of energy there. Uh, <laughs> today, I have the privilege of being in conversation with an educator and an artist who creates figure drawings, collages, installations, and animations that depict her subject's relationship to culturally loaded objects and landscapes. Please welcome the great Zoe Charlton. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. You are so kind. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. It's it's just, you know, having the video since we're doing it through Zoom, uh, which people still think I'm doing everything in person, which is is funny. Uh, I guess that's a statement on the audio, audio quality. We're, we're both just it's just all teeth. We're all just 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 smiling the day away. And that's a great way to do a Wednesday recording. Right on. So. I gave that copy and paste, you know, as I, as I said before we got started, um, introduction, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And I think in there, cause that sounds always kind of ghost, tell me about yourself and people get weird about that. But yeah. in, in terms of like, where'd you grow up, your, your background and some of those early art experiences that have influenced your current practice? Yeah. So, um, I'm an artist and I'm a collaborator and I'm a child of an educator that turned into an educator herself. Um, and trust me, that was a surprise to me. I'm a Southerner by birth. I'm a military dependent. And I'm also a county girl that grew up in the most Northern County in Maine, um, which not a lot of people know. And I'm also a twin and I come from a long line of twins on both sides of my family. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really wild. Um, yeah, I, I love that um, when I tell people I'm a twin, I tell them I came into the world understanding how to share space. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But some of those early experiences that have influenced my practice, um, there are a lot of them. But what I think is one of the most important ones is something that my mother did. And so um, I'm a military dependent, as I said, my dad retired from the Air Force in like 88, 89, 90, something like that. I think it might have been 88, 89. And we moved off base into the town and um, that was next to the base. So I became a a townie, I guess. And and we lived in this old farmhouse that was converted into an apartment building. And so there maybe were like six or seven apartments in it um, and then a few empty rooms. And my mom talked to the landlord and said, hey, you've got the basement empty. You've got these other two apartments empty because they're unfinished. Would you let me use them for storage and for, you know, just to do some other things and spread out a little bit because there are four of us. And he said, yes, it was really great. And so um, my mom designated one of the spaces for me and one for my brother. So I had an art studio at a really young age. And that is truly a a formative experience because even though I didn't have the language to name what that space was, what she told me is that it is important to have a space that you make that is only for yourself for you to do the things that you want to do. And so I always thought of, I've carried that through my life. So yeah. That's that's wonderful. Um, and yeah, having having that space that's for you, for what you're doing, it, it has intention attached to it. It is okay. like 
I, I bought a house back in 2016 and I was coming out of living in a studio apartment and literally using it as a studio. So someone yeah. would come over, they would see I had this convertible like table with the um, the storage units within it. Yes, yes. And, and it would just be microphones. It's like, did you finish recording? I was like, nah, I haven't recorded in two weeks. It's like, why do you have all of your gear out? I was like, oh, don't mind that. Just move out of the way. Put your pizza down. I don't care, you know, if I'm inviting <laughs> people over. So in transitioning to a larger space, I, in, in, in the process of purchasing the home and, and, and reviewing the property, I was yeah. like, what is the basement going to look like? Where mm-hmm. can I put that studio at? And I keep all of my creative and this, this is like very inside, but all of the things that I get something from creatively, whether it is my Funko Pops, whether it is a book about art or a book about screenwriting or even a book about podcasting or even little like pieces of work that people have given me that I've done like in live like experiences. I have like an altar, a creative altar or two actually in mm-hmm. the studio space. And it's like this room is for creativity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is beautiful. Yes. We have to have those spaces. My studio used to be in my basement and I'm actually taking this um, call from the basement <laughs> and I thought, oh, I miss having it here because I could roll out of bed and roll, you know, and, you know, in here. And so currently my space is in Gwen Oak um, yeah. in a building that's owned by um, Trisha Kiner and David Freedom. And it's really um, just beautiful because there's only three of us in the space. And, um, and so, and it's in a historically black neighborhood and, and that environment just feels good and feels right. It feels <laughs> right to create in. That's, that's great. Yeah. But I was just thinking um, of some of those other kinds of experiences. Like I'm, I think being a military dependent really prepped me for um, being patient in relationship building. Sure. And so I, I t- it takes me a long time to build relationships and, um, and sometimes more slowly than I want. And it also um, has taught me to know, to know when to step away from relationships that don't respect boundaries um, because, you know, I'm moving in and out of communities or I had so much when I was growing up. And so it really helped me really establish what those were, those boundaries were. Yeah. Boundaries, boundaries are important. And I've, I've tried to get better at that, uh, as things grow and as there are more attention, there are more people who are asked for things, time and, and, and resources and, and all of that stuff. And, and naturally I, I, I look at things like, cause my, my day job, I'm a data analyst and I look for ways to kind of improve processes. Right. So uh-huh. If I can make it easier and it just takes me like 10 minutes and it makes that person's load easier, cool. But then somehow I become the that person that uh, has a reputation of being able to help. And then it's like, okay, I, I got a recording to do. Or, hey, man, you can't call me right now. Can you just send me an email? I can respond <laughs> that way. But, you know, being a little bit more cognizant and a little bit more able to say no, because this yeah. is like new to me that people... Uh, I kind of want that that piece here and there, and yeah, yeah. are very out there about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I want to I want to talk about a um, few few art related questions. You know, as we yeah. go into it, um, and I've changed the order a little bit, but you know. Cool. Uh, <laughs> so, what feelings do you try to express in in your in your work? <laughs> so you know, I have to say that that was a. Um, 
a harder question for me to really think about because I was like, what feelings? I mean, I'm telling stories. So if you had said, well, what stories are you telling? I might be able to answer that a lot more clearly, but I thought like, what are those feelings? And I guess I am trying to create seriousness about the subject matters that I'm working in. I want people to feel that they're important to me and therefore important to them um, because they've invested time in looking. Um, And also often the size of the work is so large that even that kind of space investment makes people feel that it's really important and serious, even if there's a lot of humor or absurdity in those works. And I also want people to feel a sense of playfulness because of the way that I'm using my materials, because I am combining a drawn line or a kind of uh, traditional figure drawing approach to figure drawing or figure sketches. And I'm combining that with um, elements that I hope people recognize. Uh, They're collage elements that are taken directly from stickers and so that that familiarity so i hope that that makes the work keep keep it light and keeps it playful and so i hope that that combination um keeps people invested so i want them to feel committed to the work because of a lot of different things yeah thank you thank you and with that, and not not as if you just said it, but what stories are you trying to tell? Ah. What, what what are the stories that you uh, are, are are most interested in telling that really resonate with you that you want to tell within your work? Well, well, right now, I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of things, and um, primarily, you know, I'm interested in the narrative potential of particular bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So I make my largely my bodies of work or my career has been. Um, about making drawings of Black women, whether they are depicted with brown skin or Black skin. Um, but through the drawing and the way that I'm drawing them, I I, um, I indicate that they are Black women because I'm actually drawing Black women. Yeah. Um, but I'm, listen- I'm really interested in the narrative potential of that, of, of who I'm drawing. And, you know, and I am interested in things like land and and connections to the land and racialized bodies and, you know, and objects that are, um, that are African objects, but they're a part of the tourist market. That's, and so I'm, all of that, I just said, just takes you through about 25 years worth of work. Um, and, you know, and I think about how, um, how artists are conduits of social activism and, and social and political thought. And, um, and I'm interested in how, uh, this the how collaborations actually work and how collaborations actually bring me closer to um, understanding my own politics. Yeah. So, you know, just a range of things, um, which explains a lot of why I'm involved in collectives and collaborations and organizations as board members. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm finding, I'm searching for, that kind of, as my my friend Rob Farrell says, where's your political home? And I was like, yeah, I'm trying to find my political home, but in art, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I think that, um, yeah, so those are the kinds of themes, those larger themes that I'm working in. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for walking us through it. And like you said, distilling uh, 25 plus years, like here is my 45 seconds, my my hot 45 seconds. <laughs> so um, bravo to you on that. Uh, awesome. And yeah, I, I remember having this this conversation um, 
with with Devin Allen about um, just what our backgrounds are and how it's baked into our work. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that there is that political standpoint in there. Like sometimes people are a little too overt about it and they they're at least from a podcast perspective, it feels mm-hmm. a little virtue signally. It feels a little yeah. like, OK, you're, you're OK. You, you, you put a rainbow flag behind your logo this month. That's fine. But really, I think, you know, if that is really what one is about, it's naturally going to be reflected in your work. So, oh. When it, it, yeah. So if if someone is listening to this, you know, this this series of podcasts, they can go through it and see that I'm into, you know, pretty much people who have an interesting story. Storytelling is a, is a big thing for me in this. And it's not purely this idea or that idea. And I also kind of have more confidence, as I, I think I was talking about with you before we got started, from a curatorial standpoint of, I'm not just grabbing everyone. I'm kind of letting my taste and what my interests are and just being familiar with what's happening around me kind of dictate who I'm going to go to reach out to and what's the angle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I appreciate that you said that you're right. I think that our politic or our values or our beliefs, um, are understood through our actions, right. Or through our associations, yeah. uh, through our relationships. Um, and that's really important to me. So I, I don't do anything that actually doesn't support um, those kinds of values. It sounds really idealistic, but, you know, um, we're in a world that is, you know, a hot ass mess right now. <laughs> yes. So the only thing that we can do is like the only thing that I can do is um, be more anchored in my values and understand where the, um, the friction is when I have to um, when my values butt up against um, some other thing or some other one, you know, yeah. and, um, and know that that friction is what creates a really, has potentially created a really beautiful thing yeah. or that friction is the reason why we step away and we become more invested in, you know, in those values. And so I think that in my practice in my overall practice, um, my values come across in the organizations and the collectives that I'm a part yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you for that. If it's missed in the work. Yeah, because I've um, it, it was one of these questions that I had, and I think you gave like the best answer, even though I didn't ask the exact question worded. Like you gave the best answer to that that I've heard. Because I would ask people like, "What are your creative like non negotiables?" And you know, it's just like these are the type of people I'm working with. I'm vetting these people. I'm going through that process. It's like, do you match my values? Because I think. Here and I'm just free jazzing, by the way. I think here, I think here sometimes we run into, and it's a varying degrees like emerging artists, artists that have been doing it. There's sometimes this notion of like scarcity and then opportunity, and those things get blended. And Mm -hmm. when the scarcity is at a certain level, you're like, all right, I need to get this paid for, or I want to be able to do this in this way. You have to see who's behind everything at the end of the day. And does that match with what one's politics are, what one's values are as a creator? Yeah. Um, I. What are my non-negotiables? Sure. Um, when I make a statement that is based in my experience and I say that I, as you know, a Black woman, um, experience this. I didn't say I feel, I didn't say I think, I said I experienced, right? And when someone's reply is, well, we all, or, and and that's a non-negotiable for me. Or when, um, 
we're talking very specifically about language and um, but folks want to want to uh, uh, pass on certain kinds of language that they use because it's part of the culture or the vernacular. That's a non-negotiable for me. And, you know, so I, I take really hard <laughs> edges and I blame that on being a Capricorn. <laughs> not my fault. It was it was just when I was popped out. So not me. You know, um, I guess if I was born in December, I'd be a little bit easier. Um, and then in the studio, you know, it's interesting. I don't have a lot of non-negotiables in my studio in and of itself. And 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 that's for me, it's evident in the amount of things that I will be willing to do like I'll work a drawing and I'll work on collage and I will uh, work you know in sculpture and installation and animation I'm working on an animation project right now ah I as I was saying that I was like you know what's a non-negotiable oil painting because hmm. I don't like the smell of it anymore yeah. and strangely even though I teach with this material I actually don't use it in my own drawing because I don't particularly like the way it feels on my nails huh. and it's oh it's a certain kind of charcoal that bugs me to no end it's like it's like a teeth thing for me and so like I can't do it so you know there are those and there's a non-negotiable um of people that are on certain sides of art worldness um trying to complete my work or make my work change um and so you know that's a non-negotiable because I really feel uh, protective of my thinking and my playfulness yeah. and um, a really kind of like, like uh, awkward sense of humor, you know, <laughs> I'm really just trying to hold on to my awkwardness. <laughs> right. You know, I don't want to mask that away. So, you know, those, so those are some of the non-negotiables for me. Thank yeah. You. Thank you yeah. for sharing that because uh, it's it extends that that conversation around like boundaries and all, and I think it's important to to have those and really you know kind of like man, eh, this is why maybe I didn't do this or this is why I didn't do that and knowing it. So like I know that I don't like anchor. I I don't really get it or um, I. I have done different types of content, different types of podcasts, but maybe a video podcast isn't for me right now. I'm being fine with that and yeah. knowing that all right, audio is my my thing and for this reason. And even working with like outsourcing my work to a producer versus going through the process of producing it myself and editing it myself because I'd rather capture two more conversations and do those interviews versus let me go through and make sure everything is good here on the yeah, audio levels. Yeah. And it's, it's like recognizing that yeah. and just kind of seeing like being, being okay to do it, knowing how to do it and mm -hmm. knowing why this is not something I want to do in this matter anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, I want to talk about scale. This was a question I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Cause I feel like, you, you know, you, you maybe see a, a, somebody's work and you're like, I wonder if that would be maybe different in a, it, it, how would that, would that have the same reaction? Would I have the same reaction to the work if it was done differently? Um, if it was bigger, if it was smaller, if it was maybe done in a different texture or even done as a different medium. So like, do you, in, in your experiences as, as an artist or even observing art, have you ever wondered like, would I have different feelings about this particular piece of work is if, if it was done in a different way? Always. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Always. So 
I make um, a lot of small sketches and drawings. And, um, and the intention of those is that they're always going to turn into larger works. Um, but sometimes those smaller works actually become bodies of work. Those sketches become bodies of work. And um, the first, and so I, I say that because I've always made large drawings. That's always the intention. And so it's always surprising to me when uh, something resonates at a nine by 12 or 24 by 30, you know, 30 size, right? Yeah. Um, I think one of the best examples of that uh, where the scale actually increased in my work is when I had an opportunity to do um, to do a drawing installation at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And it was for the Sondheim. I was a finalist for the Sondheim in 2015 and the piece was called Companion Constant. And I was making this work about Kalulu, the, um, the, you know, enslaved, the young enslaved Tanzanian child of Henry Morton Stanley, white explorer, Henry Morton Stanley. Um, but he's also called, referred to as an adopted son and, you know, et cetera. And I felt that, um, I have these small sketches and I thought this actually will work. You know, I'm using the stickers and I'm drawing, I'm using iron-ons and I think it works. Um, but when I had this opportunity, I kept thinking that the story of Kalulu is so large. This idea of being having these multiple ways of, of being in relationship to mm -hmm. someone who is a colonizer, ostensibly. Um, you know, how do I do that? And so he needed to be larger than life. Yeah. And so the figures in that drawing are about 75 inches tall. And um, they're based on um, their, their drawings or figure drawings of someone that I have worked with off and on for about 12 years. And, um, you know, and maybe we'll, you know, I, I love to talk about him, um, for 12 years, but, you know, it was interesting because on one side, it's the weight of African colonization on the other side, um, you know, he is the, you know, he's the subject of colonization on the other side. He's something else. He's someone that came from actual, an actual place. And there are objects of, of um, Africanness embedded in the landscape. And so I don't believe that that piece would have been successful even half its size. Right. I actually don't think it would have been successful life-size, truly life-size. Um, so it needed to be bigger so that it filled the space and that you, that when I walked up to it and I'm five feet tall, I walked up to it and I, and I felt uh, overwhelmed by that, by yeah. those figures, those bodies and these landscapes that are, you know, sort of coming and growing out of the backpacks that he's wearing. Every, I remember, uh, I'm six, four for context. And, uh, <laughs> and if people never notice when they were talking to me, it's like, you're short. I was like, mm. and they'll see him in person. It's like, Oh, you, you're, you're a thing. You're, you're like a, uh, <laughs> you're a totem. You're a guy. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I, I remember, um, I was in a museum and, uh, New Orleans and I'm, I'm blanking on the name because I haven't been there in a while. And it's a reminder. I need to go back to New Orleans, but, it was in there and it was kind of like it, this um, wasn't bricolage, but it, it, it was kind of like found items that were used like old tech, for instance, used in uh, inside of like this cabin and it was uh -huh. inside of the museum and everything was like gold. And it's like you're around all of it. And my partner and I, who she she's she's five, two. And uh, we we're both like looking around and 
I just take a picture of her in like that kind of ratio compared to the size of the place. And I'm like, wow, you're just, we're just enshrined in gold and being inside of it, being a part of it. It's like you're experiencing it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's really important um, because scale shifts the way where, how you can place yourself inside someone else's narrative. Right. And since you're a storyteller, I, call myself a storyteller. Um, another example of that is um, with the with the help of um, art uh, artists and crafts folks in San Antonio, Texas, um, at Art Pace San Antonio, we built a half-scale replica of my grandmother's home, basically wow. from memory. And it ended up being like 12 by 10 by seven or something like that. Right. And it was turned upside down. But the idea is that it needed to be small enough to feel accessible, like a playhouse, but big enough to feel unsettled because it was tilted on its roof, you know? And and so, and I wanted people to uh, imagine themselves in that they like, they wanted to get in and, you know, kids were walking up to it, wanting to get in and jump in and adults were peering over. And it was this, um, strange like Gulliver's travel experience, you know? And so, um, but yeah, I think that scale has the ability to help people become, um, imagine themselves in that space or imagine themselves in that story or your history. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, we talk about like, you know, even from like audio, like an immersive audio experience and, you know, that's, just being in it in a different way. Like we're looking at like virtual reality. We're looking at um, all of these different ways. I know there are more and more like virtual museums and such. Yeah. And um, I remember I was at, uh, I, I became members of the Maryland Film Festival, the Parkway. And I went there to see Jurassic World. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And, you know, I'm there, but the sound in the room that we're in is so nice yeah. Uh, it felt like I was there. I was like, I'm looking over my shoulder. I was like, look, if there's a Dilaposaurus here or something, can you just tell me now so I can, you know, kind of like plan things out? Like, I'm going to fight this thing. But exactly. it, it made for a very, it made for an experience versus just going to the movies. And then yeah. that's, that's an example outside of the one, the way one traditionally looks at, I guess, fine art or what have you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's a thing. You know, Rob, that's why I listen to books on tape. <laughs> Because yeah. I really want that immersive experience. And I'm I, so invested in that. I mean, I'm, you know, when I listen to, I listen to a lot of sci-fi and um, the best ones are the ones that have like music in them <laughs> and multiple voices. You know, you can like the the voice actor changes their voice, but it's better when there's a, literally another person yeah. and it's exciting, right? And yes. then there's sound effects. And I was like, yeah, I could totally, get the, you know, the 1920s listen, sitting by the radio, listening to that. Right. Yeah. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, tra- we'll trade notes. Cause I got some suggestions and I got maybe some contacts to connect you with. Cause, uh, awesome. we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk. Awesome. Um, so let's see, I got a few more real questions I want to hit you with. And, yeah. um, so let's see, uh, does the, is there, um, an, ex- uh, an experience you would share that has helped craft or uh shaped your creative sensibility because i'm hearing whimsy i'm hearing like you know there's the political slants to to things what have you but also there's this kind of like gotta be playful gotta have that whimsy in there so so is there an experience like a life experience that you feel that has helped shaped you know how you approach your work 
I think that my travel, my just a lot of travel has really, is really what has shifted the way that I think. Um, I tend to, you know, all my materials are portable in some way. I work on paper um, because um, I think it's a seductive surface, but um, it's the material that I gravitated towards, you know, as a child, because it's the thing that you can pack in your bag. You know, my, my folks could pack in their bag and keep me occupied, you know? Um, And I think that, uh, you know, being in communities with people that are actually not drawers is what really shaped it. So there's not, I don't really have a very specific one that has changed. Ah, you know what, as we're talking, I mean, you know, I'm an educator, so I can't help but talk about school. Sure. But I was, um, I really did not know what to do. I, I went to uh, Tallahassee Community College to get my AA degree when I graduated from high school because I literally had no idea what to do. And, um, and I ended up taking a bunch of art classes because I really liked art, right? I was always doing art growing up. And I um, ended up uh, gravitating towards um, a teacher. Her name was Francois Boisdonneau. And, um, and she was from France. And I think at the time that I met her, she was probably in her fifties. <laughs> I was so like captivated by her because she wore gloves all the time, but it was because she was an oil painter and used her fingers for so many years and it cracked all of her, her, her skin and everything. And there was something that was so violently, um, romantic about that, that I was like, Ooh, artists can do all of these things. And you know, they can, you know, and it was amazing, but she had the foresight. Um, and, and, you know, when we talk about allyship, you know, and, you know, we can have other conversations about allyship, but when we talk about that of white folks in academia and how they can actually, um, do something that is meaningful for students of color, especially when there aren't many, um, she pointed, directed me to study at Florida State University with the late Ed Love. That changed my life. So that was a formative experience that really changed my life. And something that he said to me when I graduated with my BFA is um, I was on my way. I was looking for MFA programs. And he said, make sure you go to a program where you can study with someone that looks like you. Yeah. (laughs) And I kept that. That has been I mean, I'm still talking about that you know, almost 30 years later. Right. And it's one of the reasons why I chose the schools that I did, you know, to apply for and why I ultimately went to UT Austin. And it was so profound and it, and it moves me every time um, I teach classes and I have students of color, learners of color in my classes, because often they don't know me. They never worked with someone like me. And if there are black students, you know, I'm, a unicorn like them. <laughs> yeah. oh, great. So, you know, that's a, that, that was a very formative experience. I just absolutely loved and, um, and I appreciate to this day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. And in listening to previous interviews, I remember you mentioning, mentioning that before about, I had love. So that was, uh, it was great. That's great. Cause yeah. I, I felt that too. I was like, yeah, you know, it was that, that notion of, you know, doing this for as long as I have and always feeling like being an outsider and not feeling like, you know, this matters or what have you. And I was yeah. like, I didn't find the people who are around me. I wasn't learning from the people who would be trying to learn the same things. And 
it, you know, and, and it was one of those things. And um, and I think I was kind of spoiled at being with an being at an HBCU for like undergrad. I'm like, oh yeah, this is all the same. And then getting out, and it's like you're placed here doing this, and these are the people you're around, uh-huh. and I'm not around people with similar backgrounds and sensibilities. And just, you know, around people, they were all united under where we work versus what our interests are. Right. Yeah, exactly. So this is the the last real question that I have for you. And because, um, you know, the rapid fire aren't real questions per se. They're, they're just uh-huh. questions. Uh, but how or where or how do you rediscover inspiration when you're maybe feeling creatively dry or you need to kind of switch it up to kind of re-spark things? Tell me about that. Well, I mean, that's another hard question because I rarely have downtime. I don't give myself a lot of downtime, um, but uh, and I'm very rarely bored. Like I, I can't think of a time when I've been bored. I can't think of a time when I have um, walked into my studio and not known what to do. Yeah. I might not know how to do something, or I might not be thinking through something very well, right? Sure. I have I could be very critical. But very rarely am I creatively dry. And I and I think that's because I'm involved in so many things that um, when I'm confused about something or if I'm hesitant, mm-hmm. there's a pause. I actually just shift my energy into another area. Mm-hmm. And I really think about how that has the potential to feed me in other areas. And so um, I'm, I'm very willing to say yes <laughs> to a lot of things because I actually know that, um, it will impact the other things, the core things that I think about and what I do. And, you know, with that said, um, I have, um, I have, I am a co-founder of a collective of seven people called Kindred Craft. It's Kindred Creative Residence and Agroforest that's based in uh, Fletcher, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And we are an LLC. It's a nonprofit. And we're really thinking about sustainability, creativity, art, and education, and um, and how land heals, specifically yeah. for BIPOC and Alana folks. And so that um, has been very inspiring for me. And it has um, really enabled me to put into action some of the things that I've been thinking about like at school or even in other kinds of collaborations and I think my board work is a collaboration and how I can um, embody some of those ideas and um, things that I've learned in those spaces in this way and how that can inform something else and so that was really exciting. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's. I I think when you're able to kind of just change and just kind of flip it. it it does serve it serves you in a different way and i think when i start looking at what one's practice is and i try to be i try to give myself like some degree of i guess grace where what's part of what's truly part of my practice so like even yeah. what i'm going through like meeting with people being in a scene or something I need to know who I'm talking to. I need to know about what are they facing. Just it makes it more yeah. intellectually curious. It, it leads to to potentially better questions or what have you, or even. And I've been writing some proposals and stuff too, or even like you know audio books or what have you. Like 
I'm if I'm going there and I'm listening to a book about artwork or how to, you know, maybe do better interviews, questions or what's the creative journey like that's working immediately. I have like a working document where it's like, all right, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Let me type this in real quick. And that that's how I, I flip it. I'll switch between books to kind of get different perspectives. That helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you take me as a person that doesn't experience like the creative desert much because you're, you seem so involved in things. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Capricorn thing. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I think sometimes I, uh, I overanalyze things a little bit, but I mean, I am in, dipped in so many different things that I don't really get bored, but mm-hmm. I do overanalyze. I'm like, constantly tweaking nothing's mm-hmm. ever ever finished as you as i've heard with uh painters they're they're mm-hmm. not they never finish a painting they just kind of stop you know yeah. <laughs> we might be related <laughs> let's see <laughs> we'll find it out we'll find it out um so that's kind of it when it comes to like the real questions but i gotta ask you these rapid fire questions because you know sure. you know inquiring minds want to know uh yeah favorite ice cream flavor Oh, golden milk from, um, it's Taharka brothers. Uh, they're in, it might be a different name of the place, but it's in our, our house yeah. and they have a vegan line. That's the best. It's the best. Cause you feel like you're being healthy when you're eating it. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, I like Taharka brothers a lot. They, they're, they're up there. I mean, I, I don't, I don't do the vegan thing quite yet or have you, but I do work a few more vegetables into the diet. Uh-huh. Uh, but and, and, they, they have two flavors that I love um, because both of them have graham cracker in it. You know, it's the, is that the key lime? The key lime is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh-huh. When I first got here, that was my, that, that was my initial 20 pounds because that key lime, <laughs> I, there, sometimes the vegan, you know, I'm just yeah. like, yeah, but it's key lime pie. That yeah. graham cracker crust. Oh my God. It's I, so good. I had the chance, I had the, I had the privilege, because um, I, I interviewed uh, Vinny from Tahoga Brothers, and I had the privilege of uh, going to the plant and <gasps> checking out the plant, and uh, they gave me some ice cream and all that stuff. It was really cool. And um, they had oh, this oh they no. had this flavor. It was straight out of, um, they were still churning it. And they were like, yeah, you want to try this? And I was like, oh my God, yes. It was this um, like vanilla and Earl Grey. No, it was honey and Earl Grey. Oh, my it's God. delicious. Dude, I am so jealous. <laughs> Hint, hint, Tarka Brothers, please invite shout, me. Shout out to Tahaka <laughs> Brothers. You see that van, you know what's up. Uh, <laughs> um, what are you, so you, you touched on earlier the um, the audiobooks, right? So what are you currently listening to? Okay, so <coughs> I'm listening to Nettie Okorafor Lagoon again because I thought it was pretty damn fantastic, right? And it's the audiobook version. I have the book and sometimes I'll read the book, but like the audio is beautiful and it really helped me understand through fiction, right? Through sci-fi, um, what it means to have extracted, to be extracted from the land, how certain bodies are being extracted, like people are being extracted towards certain bodies and also the lands in which they live on. And also, um, and then I'm also listening to um, Jacqueline Carey's Bane Reeker. And, you know, so it's the range, right? And so, I, you know, I, I, that was introduced to me um, when I went to a residency years ago in uh, Colorado. And this was the friend 
of the author. And she was like, you should read this. And I was like, I don't read romance, fantasy. She's like, you want to read this? <laughs> and so I had like, and this is, you know, XXX, Bagat, da 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 da, Bagat, you know, um, and it's actually inspired a different kind of work yeah. while I've been listening to it, which is interesting because I've been thinking about like, um, Goya's um, Saturn eating his children, you know, um, because of that. And then also this idea of consumption of both history and your future, mm-hmm. um, as that's also connected to um, Lagoon. Yeah. And so it seems all of that seems to kind of mesh together for me in my head. It doesn't maybe make sense, but it makes sense like somehow in my head. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny when you, because uh, I, I just finished... Um doing the audio book, uh, D Watkins, uh, book, a uh, black boy smile. And mm-hmm. yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because he's reading it. So it adds a different dynamic to it where it's like, okay, yeah, that's actually funny the way you said that. And I don't know if I would have registered if I just read it or that has a different tone to it. So again, you know, it, it's something that enriches that experience when having it, 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 it spoken or it read to you. And especially if it's by the author, and yeah. and that's that's where I've I've gotten where I've just realized that I'm a multitasker in that way. I'll buy certain books that it's like, all right, I want to have this, but otherwise, I'm still going to buy it. But it's the audio version because yeah. I know that I'm going to go to the gym. I know that I'm going to be on the train or whatever. So let's multitask. Yes, you know that's 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 how I operate, and it's also on brand as a podcaster. It's like, look, I just need to have something in my ears. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So I got two more for you. Um, preferred mode of transportation, plane, train, automobile. How do you oh, like to get car? Car. Okay. car. You know what? I tell people this. My past life, I was either a truck driver, <laughs> a driver, or a migratory bird. <laughs> if you want to go any length of just eight hours plus, I'm your, I'm your girl. I will drive <laughs> across the country. Yeah, I'll be like, bet when? When are we leaving? I got I to gotta go back right now. I, I, I really romanticize the train. I really like the train for some reason. And it's just, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm thinking about doing like a quick, like, because I'm doing this spinoff I was telling you about a little bit. And I'm thinking about going to Boston. I'm thinking about going to Delaware. And I'm like, look, I can just get on every train and just make it happen. Get on the train. The last train ride I took was in May and I went from... Um, Baltimore to um, Burlington, Vermont. And that was magic. It was yeah. so beautiful. I loved it. You should come to Fletcher. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, uh, it was, it was just magical. And I do like, I do like, um, I do like the train. Uh, yeah. Cause I was actually, I did a trek. I had a collaborator in Boston yeah. and I was on that train every week. <laughs> I used to drink beer. I would, one of the, um, the conductors, said, oh, this is how you open the bottle. And he was like, click. I was like, ooh, click. And I felt like such a boss because, you know, all the other passengers were like, she's awesome. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, <know. laughs> I, I think I think the longest trip I actually took, it wasn't Vermont. It, I, I've gone to Rhode Island a few times, but uh, the longest one that I've done, I think, was maybe Marlboro, Massachusetts. Gotcha. And I just remember it was like late November. It was for focus group work. And I was like, this was a mistake. This was, why, why was this the choice? It's cold. 
So here, here's the last real qu- last uh, rapid fire question I have for you. Um, this, this is this is um, about habits, rituals, norms, all of that different stuff. Um, do you have any creative uh, superstitions? If so, could you share one? Um, creative superstitions. Because um, I think of theater with this question all the time. Yeah, I. <laughs> yes, I have the exact same. I have this block of graphite that I bought when I was in grad school from the first CAA conference, College Art Association conference that I went to. And I have carried that around for like 20 years and I have taken chunks off of it. And so some of those really big passages of value are done with that. And so I always use it in the work. And then I have a a holder, a graphite holder that I always use. (laughs) And if I can't find it, because I've left the studio untidy, like I actually have a hard time working. So I have an attachment to certain kinds of materials for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's legit. That's legit. Um, I, I have to have a certain headset on. Uh, I just try these out for the first time. It's I'm, I'm still getting adjusted, but it's like, if it's something that's a little too big, these are tight. They fit the way that I want them to fit. If Uh it doesn't work, it's just like, I'm having them off halfway and then it just becomes part of my personality. Someone told me that I looked like I was wearing a fascinator, you know, like those hats. Yes. And I was like, yes. that's not the point. <laughs> not the point. Oh, I have another one. And I'm actually going to pull it up because I'm going to read the names of uh, these uh, these uh, these um, singers. Sure. So when I'm really in the zone of working, I will listen to the exact same song over and over again. And because I love this particular song so much when I am in the zone and I don't want anything breaking it. I don't want to be distracted by dancing or anything. I listen to a song for you. And so I have like 13 versions of this song, (laughs) Bonnie Hathaway, Leon Russell, the Carpenters, Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston, Ray Charles, Black Clock, Simply Red, Michael Buble, (laughs) Lynette Washington, Willie Nelson, kind of like spitting, which is a band and <laughs> Rankin. So I have that. So when I am hitting the zone, my landlord might hear the same song. And like, that's when it's like, don't bother me. Don't knock, don't do anything. If somebody calls, I won't even answer. Cause that's, that's when I know it's like, okay, let me do that playlist. That, that reminds me of this uh, John Mulaney joke. And he was just talking about the best uh, day ever, best meal ever. And him and his, one of his buddies, they uh, went to this place called the Salt and Pepper Diner in Chicago. And they loaded up, I think, 15 straight plays of uh, What's New Pussycat. Oh, my God. And then they had for instead of putting in the sixteenth one, they put in uh, "It's Not Unusual," and then everyone's like, <gasps> and then what's new? Pussycat comes out after it. Oh <laughs> <Again>. my god! Is <laughs> so, a version of that? That's a little. It's, it's a little. It's great. It's, it's great. It's, it's exactly. Exactly. They didn't get banned from right. They didn't get banned from. <laughs> no, but they, they they did mention it was like one dad that's he's hating his kids. He's like, ah, you can you can you can tell he just got his anger management chip two days ago. And he wants to just scream. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. So. That's um that's it for today. So um I'm gonna thank you for uh, sharing and, and and sharing your experience, your process, and your your background with us, and, and even your favorite ice cream. Um, thank you. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check out you, your work, social media, website, all yeah. of that good stuff. The floor is yours. 
Thank you. So yeah, people can always follow me on Instagram. I do love the gram. It's zoe.charlton.studio. So please follow me there. My website is zoecharlton.com. And uh, my current collaboration, my collective is called kindredcraft.org. So please check that out. Um, And we have our first convening in August and it'll be a small convening. So I hope people really check it out and want to come. But that's where. So there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Zoe Charlton for coming on to the podcast and, and spending a yarn with Rob Lee. Um, I talked about talk about myself in the third person. Uh, so until next time, um, there is art community in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.